Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar, weekdays at 2 on Mile High Sports. Welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. I'm Sean Trotar, Sandy Clough on my left. The couple big games, obviously, last night for the local clubs. Uh, one for the Avalanche well, went well, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Of course, the Avs take control of the Central Division with a win over the San Jose Sharks. They will get the Sharks again tomorrow in San Jose with an opportunity to all of a sudden assemble a lead of points, not just the tie breaks and not just the game at hand. They will be able to actually put some distance between them and their competitors if they're able to continue to get the win. And we we will definitely delve into that as well because that's obviously great news for the Avalanche who have played brilliantly despite their injuries over the last, really now, about half a season for the in the NHL campaign. Except for a minute and a half last night in the third period. Uh, I right. thought they played extremely well. I thought the goaltending was solid. Um, the only quibble I had, and I wonder if you got the same impression in watching the game. I was watching it uh, at a local establishment with a friend of mine. And I got the feeling especially after he hit the post from point-blank range early on, that the ads were really trying to set up Ranton for that 50th yes. goal to their detriment. I agree. I think there was so much in effort. I mean, even the uh, the Altitude broadcast sort of had him highlighted like he was a video game character every time he came on the ice looking right. for that 50. And I, I'm, I'm saying I, too much and pressure. I, I'm sure they would acknowledge that the priority beyond getting Ranton's 50th right. was winning the game. But their behavior during the game made you wonder, and I would say at least through the first two periods. Now, McKinnon was McKinnon. Uh, he shot when he needed to right. shoot in the last period and in the overtime, and he had three points on the night, two goals, one assist. He was magnificent. He was the difference in the game. Uh, but I, I thought there was an unhealthy emphasis at certain stages of the game, particularly on the power play, when they had open shots that they should have taken and would normally take yes. in trying to get him that 50th goal. It will happen. And I think psychologically, when you're doing that, he squeezes the stick I even agree more. Completely. I think, I think when you do that, the, the result you're, the result you're trying to generate all, almost becomes less likely to happen because you're trying to force it. The other, they would did, they didn't try to force goal 49 or goal 42 of course or not. goal 33. Uh, just let it play out. Do what you're doing, and you will get it. I think there was too much of an effort. Uh, they could have easily. And of course, played. he had two assists. Right, as it turned out. Now he's going to get one. I know he would have fifty if an empty netter hadn't been blocked by an official at, at oh, one yeah, point yeah. a while back. So as, uh, but he'll bounce someone in uh, it, it, to uh, 
get the the 50th. It'll, it'll go off somebody's rear end. Uh, maybe a teammate, maybe an opponent. He would have had it he'll, off of Arturi Lekkonen had it not hit Lekkonen's hand and broken his finger and bounced in. True. <laughs> Otherwise, True. that would have been, right. been right. Hey, it's two. It, it, it will happen. They have enough games left. Six games left. You're telling me he can't find a way to get one goal in six hey, games? Two points last night, eight shots. I mean, so. Right, it, right. Yeah. So, but, you know, it, he doesn't need eight shots to get number 50. In fact, uh, I thought. He was pressing, and so uh, we'll leave that alone. We'll maybe get back to it later. But the the main thing was that the Avalanche won uh, in overtime, and given the choice, knowing that you had to play Dallas on Saturday and last night you were playing San Jose, you don't mind giving San Jose the point. That doesn't matter. Yeah, you don't care what you that. needed on Saturday was a regulation win last night and tomorrow night, to be honest, it doesn't matter as long as you get the two points. It doesn't matter if it's regulation, overtime, shootout, because you don't care about San Jose points. Yeah, You didn't care about Dallas points. Now, in some of the other games they have remaining, you'd prefer to have regulation wins as opposed to overtime wins. I would dare say in every game, if they win every game from here on out in overtime, that's fine. Sure. They'll win, sure. The, you'll win, they'll the, win you'll the division. division. You'll be the two seed. And, It'll be great. And, you know, Dallas and, uh, and, and and the Wild uh, also have 98 points. But uh, tomorrow night, I think, if I'm not mistaken, they all play. Minnesota at Pittsburgh, Philadelphia at Dallas, and the Avs, of course, once again at San Jose. So good, a good win for the Avalanche at this point. You know, any win, as long as you get the two, like Sandy put it, a good win. It doesn't matter what the Sharks get. Uh, the rest of the way, just get the two points. And keep in mind, too, give give credit where it is due. This is a 7-2 to two game if Kapokakinen of the San Jose Sharks in net does not completely stand on his head, especially... Uh, after the, the the first couple of goals, I agree. I, mean, he was I, thought, I thought he was a little shaky early, and then he played out the, of his mind. Then he mind. just slammed the door. I mean, they, he was stopping everything. I mean, things that looked like easy money. At the goals. end of the second period, they should have had a goal, and that would have made it four to one. Uh, yeah. And even a two goal rally that in the third period by the Sharks would have fallen short. I mean, five power play saves for the Cockett. And I mean, I thought he was. He was tremendous for a while. It was starting to look as if, if you know, he was absolutely going to be uh, difficult to beat and make things tough. And he now, was difficult they, to beat. They have been 38 saves. A good overtime slash shootout team this year. Mm-hmm. The Avs have. Yeah. Don't you think? Oh, yeah. As opposed to Dallas, for example, losing 14 games in overtime slash shootout. And the Wild losing 10. Avs have only lost six. Six. Over six year. overtime losses. That's it. Yep, shootout. Yeah. That's it. And and that's the difference between first place and third place. Yeah. And three of those are in the shootout, which is, let's face it, a 50-50 proposition for the most part. And with six games left, four wins gives them 50 wins. Who would have thunk it back with in this many man games missed, with that many people involved? Were, uh, right. 2017 and three. Who would have thought that 50 wins was even a possibility at that point? But that's how good they have been over the past 36 games which is five games short of half a season's worth of games, and they have been among the two or three best teams in the league, along with Boston and Edmonton, 
during that particular stretch. The the pressure, of course, for the Avs now is that they have six games left and a game in hand, and they're in first place. You kind of need to put it this way. You have to find a way to put this way. And and, and now, you know, it, it would be, it went from being, boy, wouldn't it be nice if they could make a run and and go ahead and claim this division. No, you're now in first with six games to go and a game in hand. Uh, this has to be, a, if you're going to really make a run at the Stanley Cup again, you have to close the deal. You have to finish this oh, with agree. the number two seed. I agree. And I think the Avalanche are capable of it. We'll find out a little bit more when they play the Sharks again tomorrow. Night, and they got Anaheim, a soft opponent on Sunday. Now they right. do have the Kings in Edmonton around that Anaheim game. Yes. Kings on Saturday in Los Angeles, uh, where they got smacked last night by Edmonton. Boy, Edmonton's playing well. Edmonton uh, had are. two shots. I was watching that game, too, alongside the Avalanche game. And Edmonton had two shots in the first period. And you think, boy, L.A. is good. And they just coasted the last two periods. <laughs> the, wild, uh, the Wild don't have a easily. gimme tomorrow, as you pointed out, against the Penguins. The Stars certainly easier against Penguins the Flyers. Penguins are desperate but, now. But Penguins yeah, are not a playoff team. That's a, that's, that's a big one. So, so that's good for the Avs that is. Pittsburgh will have to play with the same desperation that they applied to the Avalanche. In a game last week. And the Avalanche, if they just get the job done on Thursday, just one game at a time, get, this, as Sandy said, two points at a time, and they'll get Actually, to where it was two weeks they want to be. The, yeah. Avalanche oh, I think you're Pittsburgh. right. Yes, you're right. Time flies when we're having uh, Yeah, and winning, fortunately, a lot of games. Well, the Denver Nuggets have won a lot of games. They are the, well, not quite, as it turns out, the top seed in the West. <laughs> they will be. They could have been. They should have been. They played the Houston Rockets, and they played everybody. They, they did what I, I, yesterday, you know, we talked about it and we weren't really sure how this was going to go, but I, I suggested that realistically I would consider playing everybody to put the Rockets away and then just Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray uh, have a seat for the rest of the regular season. Well, it turns out that's what the Nuggets tried. It did not work. They ended up getting embarrassed, especially in the second half, by the lowly Houston Rockets, the worst team in the Western Conference with nothing to play for. The Nuggets still have a magic number of one, and there's still every reason to believe they're going to get there. But it's the comments after the game that Michael Malone had about his team that I think we're telling. Michael Malone says things that I don't often agree with, but last night after the game, uh, forget about the scolding. The point he made about not winning in the first round right. if they play this way is something that he seems to be taking more seriously than many other people. And we had a little debate yesterday on the program about the likelihood of the Nuggets losing in the first round and who would be uh, an easier matchup, uh, relatively speaking, and I think there is still that question uh, that exists involving Golden State, the Clippers, the Lakers, and New Orleans. Now, Golden State got a big win last night against Oklahoma City on its home floor where they've been Very pretty good. good this year. And I'm guessing, given their position and the fact they only have two games left, both on the road at Sacramento and at Portland. As bad as they are on the road, there's no way you can lose to Portland. No way Golden State can lose. Portland, Portland. by the way, without Damian Lillard, who's been shut down. For and up without Jeremy Grant and without Nurk, and you know they're, they're decimated. 
Now, that didn't keep them from beating Minnesota the other day, which was the biggest upset in the NBA in 30 years. But what I'm saying is Golden State's going to go 43-39 or 44-38, and I think they're going to beat out the Clippers for fifth place. So let's discard Golden State, whether Golden State, as I believe, would be a good matchup for the Nuggets or a bad matchup, as uh, some other folks have suggested. Uh, I think it comes down to three teams as to the identity of their first-round opponent. Clippers, Lakers, Pelicans. I think it's going to be one of those three. I'll discard Golden State. And frankly, Minnesota's only got two left. Uh, I think Minnesota's going to make the play-in, but they're not likely to win two games, which you have to do if you're ninth or 10th. You have to win twice. Right. Not once, twice. Uh, Oklahoma City is hanging on, but Dallas may overtake Oklahoma City if Dallas can figure out a way to win its three remaining games. They're all at home, and there's no reason that Dallas shouldn't win at home against Sacramento, and I believe that game is tonight, uh, Chicago and San Antonio. Now, come on. Two of those three are gimmies. The Sacramento game, uh, I don't know. Is Sacramento really playing for all that much? They're pretty much ensconced in third place. You you are right. There are three significant games in the NBA tonight. They're the three latest games, although they really don't start that late. The Grizzlies go to New Orleans where they will take on the Pelicans. For what that's worth, by the way, the Pelicans six-and-a-half-point favorites. Interesting. Interesting. The Mavericks... Uh, with the same numbers, putting minus six and a half in Vegas over the Kings, as you pointed out, Kings will be visiting. And then the late game on ESPN with that 8 p.m. start here, the Clippers at the Lakers, another very important game. So scoreboard watching, things will get a little more clear right. after tomorrow. But it is the Nuggets themselves. And, I, before and the you, Nuggets could clinch tonight if New Orleans if New does, does beat hold on to what Vegas they, at least uh, thinks will occur. As it is often stated back in, but... Which, you know, by the way, you've also won 52 games, and, and it would allow you first place team. to have every excuse to sit Jokic against the Phoenix Suns tomorrow. Well, we which we they should do. Anyway. We were all in agreement. They should do anyway. I don't care if they've clinched or not. They should. But he should play. Ryan Blackburn, you right. or me, you shouldn't play against the Suns. We were all in agreement that Jokic shouldn't play I anymore. I, I don't know if Ryan was quite as no. Ryan, Ryan Ryan said the rest of the all season. Right. All right, then all, all three of us that. were fully vested. In the idea that Jokic should not play again, he did play last night. I thought that he still looked physically compromised. Is that a good enough euphemism? Yeah, I think that's fair. I, 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 I guess I might. I don't think he was anywhere near 100%. And I know he played bad, and he's allowed to have a bad night. Um, I was surprised that Michael Malone kind of called him out, too, uh, during his postgame Remarks uh, mentioning that of the 20 Nugget turnovers, Jokic had eight of them. To be that specific and calling him out that way uh, surprised me. Uh, Malone doesn't need to criticize Jokic. Jokic will criticize Jokic. And by the way, the whole MVP thing. It's over. It's probably over. MB got 52 on Boston last night in a big game, although it won't change the standings at all. Well, In the East, but getting 52 against Boston. In a game Boston was trying to win, Boston wasn't And it's And it's become very clear, Sandy, that, that the voters would like, with, with Jokic already winning two, Giannis right. winning two. Right. It's, they, just they, it's his turn. Yeah. That's the best argument for Embiid 
that anybody seems and, and to be able to make. Fine. And the 52 he scored last night, he was magnificent. Yeah, magnificent. That, and that's fine. It was and you one know of what? the best games I've seen any big that, man play in the last five years. That takes so the pressure away from Jokic anyway. It doesn't matter. And Malone for that matter. So great. Whatever. That's all. The, the MVP doesn't matter. They're not going to beat Phoenix, I don't think, tomorrow night with Jokic. No, I don't either. So Shouldn't there's no him. point in playing. But it's the quote from Michael Malone that I want to make sure that I read because uh, you might not have gotten a chance to get it on the broadcast. It had to be you know, set up from the uh, – some of it had to be included in, in the, the write-up. But we'll give it to you. Here's what Malone said after the game. Well, I'm definitely going to say something. You know, that's my job as a head coach. You know, I'm not going to, you know, just say, hey, it's okay, guys, bring it in. No, that's BS. You know, um, you know, when we don't do our jobs, there's accountability. And I speak the truth. And, I, and me calling us soft tonight isn't something I'm saying to you. I just told our team that. And I dared somebody to challenge me that it wasn't true. And no one did because we as a group were soft tonight. That, I'm not saying we are soft, but tonight we were. Um, but when I came in there, I think, you know, a couple of vets, you know, uh, were saying stuff, and that's great. To, great. It's not always on me. The players take ownership. We're in this together. And when you have veterans willing to step up and speak, you know, uh, you hope that it's impactful. We had a chance. To... If that's how we're going to play, we'll be out in the first round. Easy. Easy. There we go. That is essentially the quote, right? And yep. the idea behind that, that's the part I think that's important. If we, if that's how we're going to play out in the first round. And I I like, I, I have two have had issues with Malone. I liked everything he talked about. He, he said he, he called the team soft and dared someone to challenge it. He's not saying that the team itself is soft. His argument was like, tonight you had an opportunity to do something pretty special that would have made your life easier, and you didn't come out with, with any heart tonight. At the second half, they thought they were the globetrotters throwing the ball all over the court. It was a bad performance, and you know what? I, I think that's one of the best things. One of, our, one of my worries is the Nuggets make what could be a title run. Is, is Michael Malone the guy? And I do have concerns about his in-game rotation management, though some of that has been addressed. I do have concerns about the way he plays the bench. Some of that actually has been addressed. I do think Michael Malone has evolved as a coach this year. I have no issue whatsoever with anything he said there, and I think he was right to push it. And I get your point with, no need to criticize Jokic. Jokic criticized himself. That said, I'm going to actually be on Malone's side. That kind of performance, your back-to-back MVP was on the floor for 25 minutes, and he didn't play well either. He's minus 21. And, and, and maybe in a game you lost and by maybe, 23. Maybe he is not 100. percent But what's, what's the rule? If you're good enough to be out there, the expectation is you're well, good enough to, to contribute. And, and right? that would be my only quibble that I don't believe he was healthy enough maybe to so. be out there. I don't think he should play at all for the rest of the year. I'll say that again today. But and, if, if, and they have a few games left. They have Phoenix and Utah on the road. They have Sacramento Sunday night at home. There's no way you should play in a back-to-back. But if, if And he shouldn't play. You're Michael Malone, Sandy. You have to be able. If This, if this is a potential title run. And, and it's Michael Malone's job. He could, have, finally, he could lead the Nuggets to the first number one seed in their history in the Western Conference. And if they lose in the first round, he's gone. Well, and he knows it. And he I, would bring that up. I, I admire that, certainly. Uh, Quibble some. But I also think with you, you, have to, you can't call out your team and not stuff. call out your MVP. No, I, the, the team uh, performed well, and okay. every and you have to call out every man on the team or but you start messing I, I, I things thought, in the locker room. I thought, I thought Malone handled it perfectly. I thought, I thought he was physically compromised, though. And that, the Nuggets have been playing footsie with this injury, so to speak. <laughs> and... You know, I, I, 
that this is where it comes back to bite him because then you play well. You kind of insinuated you were arresting him more than protecting him from further aggravation of the injury, and you you, you sort of danced around that subject. And now you're saying, well, he played last night. He was totally healthy and turned the ball over eight times. Uh, I do think the starters were the ones he was calling out, and I give him credit for that. Actually, I thought the bench guys were pretty good. Certainly, uh, 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 Christian Brown was a plus player in a game they lost by 23 points. So they, they, the criticism is not directed at him. And Brown got his minutes last night. Uh, uh, both Bruce Brown and Christian Brown got uh, their minutes last night. Watson played about 18 minutes. Um, Jackson even got in there for 13:43. They weren't the problem last night. The starters, including Jokic, at least statistically, did not carry their weight in the fourth quarter when I believe they had a lead at the beginning of the fourth quarter, if I'm not mistaken. Nuggets will be back in action Thursday against Phoenix, but in three weeks, the NFL draft is upon us. We'll take a look at some of that evaluation and how that comes across on the off-the-field activity. We'll do that with, I guess, Dr. Rick Perea next. I'll tell you all the story about the joke around the thief in the night. Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar, presented by Burnham Law. Hire the winner at BurnhamLaw.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. Welcome back to the show. Joining us now from a behavior design specialist, Think One. That's thinkone4u.org, number four. Uh, we've had this man as a guest on our show at other places as well, Dr. Rick Perea, performance a coach for the Denver Broncos in their Super Bowl 50 winning season. So uh, thank you for joining us, uh, Doctor. And uh, as we get close to the NFL draft, obviously the Broncos don't have a first-round pick. They don't have a second-round pick. They don't pick until the third round. So the evaluation process for players, everyone goes to the physical things. In fact, that's what the combine, for example, is for. But now when you're getting into those later rounds and a lot of the players that you're looking at their performance, their statistics, they're similar. You have to find a way to separate which guys are going to make that transition to the league and perhaps even improve as opposed to, say, they peaked in college. And the mindset behind that is kind of what you're really an expert at. So if you're the Denver Broncos, you're looking to separate out these third round and beyond selections, what's the first thing you do when you look at personnel trying to figure out what makes them tick? Great question. First of all, thanks for having me on, Sandy and Sean. It's uh, great to see you in studio again. It, it's great it, it's to be here. It's been quite a few years in various venues since we've been able to talk to you face-to-face. It has. It's been uh, virtual, and but now it's face-to-face, and it's it's beautiful. It's quantitative. Um, so, you know, Sean, what I do is this. I, I, uh, an easy way to understand this is there's a quantitative assessment, and that's all f- also measurables. Height, vertical jump, 40 time, things like that. Then we have what's called qualitative assessment. That's the human experience. That's things like confidence, the the psychological, the emotional aspect to people. And that's where a lot of teams miss. They're not as astute in the qualitative evaluation of players. 
every team is very good at the quantitative. They've, they've perfected that, uh, you know, at the combine. And, you know, the thing that really surprises me is when, when you know, television covers the combine. They cover the quantitative ad nauseum all day. They don't even talk about the qualitative. Every night from 6 to 11 p.m. is the qualitative experience. You know, they have rooms down there in that, that little old train station. <laughs> and so what they do is they have 15-minute increments, and each player goes to one team that they is invited, and they spend 15 minutes, then they get a five-minute break, they go to the next team. But it's all qualitative. It's measuring personality emotionality, psychology, because as you guys know, you can draft a player from Alabama, from LSU, any one of these top schools, I better not leave out Ohio State, all of those top teams, and you don't, and you know the height, the weight, the speed, the athleticism, the change of direction, all of that, but you don't know their emotionality, their psychology. Now, where we come in is we, we, ad, we um, administer personality assessments. And those personality assessments will give us a clearer picture into the psychology, into the emotionality of a player, but it still doesn't give us the whole picture. Here's the missing link. Each psychologist has a different style at the way to deliver that content to a team. So, for example, as you mentioned, I was the Broncos psychologist. I've been the Miami Dolphins, Cleveland Browns. I could go on and on. Every head coach asks me different questions. And depending on their questions will really evoke different answers from me. So it depends on the team, Sean, and what they're looking for. But I can tell you this, and, and you, you guys know being here in Denver, Colorado, Denver hasn't done a really good job at assessing the qualitative aspects of their draft choices, especially at the quarterback position. And to me, when they acquired Russell Wilson – that was their way of kind of raising the white flag and saying, you know what, we're not even going to draft players anymore. I'm going to get one through free agency, and it appears that they have maybe have missed again. But to answer your question, the long-winded answer is personality assessments gives us a clear picture at the qualitative aspects to every player. Because I can tell you this, when a player decides to work hard, when a player decides to hit you on as an outside linebacker to put his nose in, in you, when a player decides to run their route full speed, that doesn't start in their hamstrings. It doesn't start in their chest muscles. It starts in the brain. And so if you don't have the neck up right, you'll never have the neck down 100%. From overall pick 67 through 195, as things stand now, the Broncos make five selections. Yep. After 195, they're done. They don't have any of the first 66 picks. Is it even more important if you're looking for a diamond or maybe in the Broncos' case, several diamonds in the rough Yep. to put particular emphasis on the qualitative slash psychological aspect when you're drafting exclusively in that area? You're 100% because... In the quantitative, it's easy to say, oh, this kid runs a 4.28. You know, he's got 3% body fat. His vertical jump is 46. You know, it's easy to evaluate that. The, the kid that you want on your football team is the kid that runs a 4.78. He may be a little bit small. He may be a little bit in his, you know, not as, as proficient in his quantitative, the measurables. But the qualitative, 
you see something different in the kid. You see a work ethic. You talk to his high school coach, his college coach, and they said this kid was different. His work ethic. He'd get up at 5 in the morning. He'd go to the gym. He'd go to school. Then he'd go to football practice. He'd come home, do his homework, and, you know, 11 o'clock at night, we hear grunting in his room, and he's in there doing push-ups. The kid never, you know, his motor is on full speed the whole time. So those later picks, the qualitative evaluation becomes paramount, Sandy. If you don't understand the qualitative side of players, you will not draft well, but more importantly, you won't understand how to develop players because sometimes you will say, I'll take this kid in the sixth round. You know, he doesn't have all the measurables per se, but we love his qualitative aspect and we're willing to develop him so in his second, third, and fourth year, he becomes an NFL-type player. So when when we talk about the idea, when you're trying to get with these players, and and we're talking with Dr. Rick Perea, by the way, take one for you.org for the number, the – it gets distilled into things like the, like you talked about the, the want to right. You know, yep. people say, like, "Oh, well, does he have the want? Does he have the desire?" And trying to gauge that, it seems like a twofold challenge. I mean, obviously, if you're one of the few players, two hundred and sixty something players that are getting drafted across the country, you had the want to to get to a very high level. But what happens on when they run into that next level? If we've seen a lot of players, there's there's a barrier there. Right. Uh, you may have been a star player the whole time, but when you get to the NFL level. Everyone was that guy. Right. You know, everyone was, was the big man on campus. So how do you try to find a way to sift through the guys that can handle that adversity? And, and maybe, you know, you take that initial shock and, and you take a step back, but then continue to go forward because identifying that seems to be the key. If yeah. the athleticism is there, that, is that interview-based? Is that interviewing coaches, friends, family. I mean, how do you do that in the best way so you can find a, someone who you know will be able to continue to grind through uh, a season, a career, through adverse situations, that the likes of which they will probably have never faced before? Right. Well, it's twofold. One, it is observational. So, like, I was talking to um, Ron Rivera recently, and I said, I can look at your quarterbacks in the eye, and I can tell you how, if they believe in themselves. Now, he might say, oh, that's voodoo, but it's not. It's I have – we have indicators that tell us what, when people are strength and they're convicted in their belief systems, how they look, how they don't look at you, the way they speak. All of these signs give us qualitative information about somebody. There's one personality assessment that measures what we call conscientiousness. And conscientiousness is the motor. And if you have it at a covert level, now covert behavior, C-O-V-E-R-T, if you think of CO, think of covered thoughts, feelings, and perceptions. I can't see those. I'm looking at you right now, Sean, but I can't see your covert behavior. All right, my poker face still works. <laughs> o- <laughs> overt behavior, O V E R T, think of O open. I can see that. That's anger control, anger management. I can see that behavior. The covert behavior is the conscientiousness. And we can measure that. We can measure their motor, like, and, and it's at a covert level. It's not how they can fake it. Any player can work hard. Any player can work hard when it's time for a coach to watch him. When it's, um, you know, they're at a pro day at the combine. But it's what you do when no one's watching. That's the covert behavior we're measuring. And in conscientiousness, we can measure that and get a high validity, high reliability score that will tell us, is this a kid with a motor? Is this a kid that doesn't need a carrot in front of him? Because that's what happens, Sean. Let me give you an example. Let's say a kid, I'll use Alabama because I know a lot about that program. 
we got a kid at Alabama, and he plays well. He's all SEC, maybe all American. You know, he gets drafted in the first two, three rounds. Well, at Alabama, he dominated. He dominated physically. And he, he never, you know, he going to get hit in the mouth in the SEC. I understand that. But when you get to the NFL, offensive tackles can run, okay? Right. People think, oh, this guy's 330. You know, Laramie Tunsil, who was our starting offensive ta- left tackle for the Miami Dolphins, you, were, you, you, you met him, Sandy. I did. Um, you know, kid's 6'6", 320, and ran a four, high 4'6". Four he can throw a football. I've seen it with my own eyes. He can throw a football 95 yards in the air. He can dunk. He's an athlete. He's an amazing athlete. When he played in the SEC, um, he dominated. Well, he gets the NFL. Now he's got guys that are going to hit him in the mouth, play after play after play. Now your psychology comes into play. It's not so much your change of direction, your arm length, your extension, your quickness. Now you're getting hit in the mouth every play. Then Now your psychology goes, oh, man, this dude is just as big as me, just as quick as me. Maybe even got a little more nasty. So now your psychology really plays a role. And that's why you see so many players who perform at a high level, at the college level, but they get to the NFL and they don't perform. So that conscientiousness is a measurement that will give us a really accurate indicator if the kid has got a motor at the covert level. Now, that, that's, it's interesting you brought up Laramie Tunsil, of course, because you know we know that he would have been drafted almost certainly significantly higher than he was, but you had the, the pre-draft video with... with the marijuana situation yep. that knocked him down. So how does a team, because these things will run into it, right? How does a team then try to figure out what you look past and what you don't look past when trying to decide if you're going to take a bet on a player? Yeah. It boils down to the value systems and the belief systems of the GM, the EVP, executive vice president, and your head coach. So some of this is organizational. You're just willing to roll the dice a little. Hundred percent. You you know from team to team, it's the organizational's beliefs and value systems that play a role. There's some teams that say you know, just because that kid you know smokes weed or just because he does, he got in trouble a few times in college with with girls whatever. Um, we're gonna we're he's still a football player to us. In fact, he's got a little bit of nasty to him. He's got a little streak to him. They kind of like that player, depending on the position. And if we're talking about a linebacker, a defensive end, yeah, we like that. If we're talking about a quarterback, maybe we evaluate it a little bit differently. But every team's belief and value systems really infiltrate how people draft. I mean, I've been in draft rooms before, Sean, where it's scientific. I mean, it is. It's really there's a lot of analysis. There's a lot of quantitative and qualitative analysis. And I've been in draft rooms where they're just like, well, I like this kid. He runs well. He's an athlete. He's great. And then you see a bunch of talking heads around the room getting sore necks because all they're doing is agreeing with them. And you, you say, let's pick him. And so they pick him. So depending on the team, it's relying upon their beliefs and value systems. What did you think on this subject of Jalen Carter, who's had some problems yeah. in his life? Yep. Very talented coming out of Georgia, saying I'll only talk or deal with teams drafting in the top 10. When he may not be a top 10 pick. Right, right. Well, you know, a kid like that, I mean, what is he, 21, 22 years old, that's probably more directive of his agent than him. And I, I always remember that, that, you know, these these young kids are have a lot of management, a lot of people on their teams they're not always making decisions that are wise to them 
A lot of times it's his agent. You know, I think the reality is that's a poor decision because, I mean, there's nothing to hide, whether you're getting picked first overall or 21st overall. You know, I've been – a lot of my clients are first-round draft choices, and they talk about leading up to the draft and their, you know, their comportment, their behavior. And I got to tell you, the more open you are, the more teams are going to be receptive to what you do. When you put that, you know, draw that line in the sand, I'm only going to talk to the top 10 teams. I'm only going to talk to these teams. There's only a few players that have ever been able to do that in the history. One's been here in Denver, if you remember, in 1983. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think so. I, I seem to remember seem how to that remember that out. guy? Yeah. yeah. I think his contract just ran up today, yeah, too. Right. We're talking with Rick Bray of think1foryou.org about the way the, the teams approach the draft process, how they go together and assemble this for the NFL. But we'll, we'll come back to this because this is an interesting discussion here. Our call and text line is 303 831. Okay. Pardon me, real quick. My 1340. Thank you, Danny. My brain. <laughs> and uh, in the meantime, we'll take the break to find out what that means about my covert or overt personality next on Mile do. High Sports. Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar, weekdays at 2 on Mile High Sports. Danny, ba- Danny Bailey with the save on the way out. Thank you very much, uh, Danny. <laughs> yeah. Kick, save, and abuse. Yeah, part of what I'm yeah. here for. Absolutely. Uh, that, that, there's a reason he's in there. He, he pushes all the buttons uh, for the show, and you can tell why, because Sandy and I don't need to be near them. Uh, we're happy to be joined in studio by Dr. Rick Perea from Think One. Uh, you go to thinkone4u.org for the website for all of it. The Performance psychologist, coach for the Broncos and Super Bowl for their Super Bowl 50 season in 2015, as well as for uh, tons of other uh, teams as well. And uh, we've been happy to have you as a guest. And amazingly, at least for me, this is the first time we've actually get to meet you in person. But I had some stuff that was interesting talking about uh, at the break, some of these things, too. And Sandy, you came up with an interesting question that, that you wanted to ask, because one of the things that Dr. Rick talked about was the idea of you also may taper the personality you're choosing for based on the position they play. Yes, and Deion Sanders recently made a comment that uh, certainly didn't pass the political correctness test and was taken, I think, perhaps uh, more literally than he meant it. But the general idea was, and I'm paraphrasing what he said here, that in terms of recruiting, when it's offensive players, you want guys from stable backgrounds. Um and I'll quote him directly on the kinds of defensive players you want. You want single mama boys. Mm. Okay. And he got in some trouble for that, leaning into some racial stereotypes. And I, I understand why it made people uncomfortable. But isn't it common sense that on offense you do want stability? And on defense, as as you've said before, you want people who are somewhat wounded Yes. Psychologically. Absolutely. You know, offensive football is assignment football. You know, you break the huddle if there is a huddle. You know what you're going to do. You have an assignment to run a certain route, to block a certain player. Um, It's assignment football. So you do want stability. I mean, when you look at psychologically speaking, you want stability. Now, I mean, you know, I I, I like Dion. 
but there's a little bit lacking there of that analysis because you know single moms can produce very stable people. Okay? Of course, <laughs> you know, right. and do all the time, right. and, and do all the time. And really, what you're searching for on defense is that psychologically wounded player. And what I mean by that is that it's a player that has been wounded throughout their life, and that can come in two parent homes, one parent, Absolutely. no parent homes. Absolutely, and so. The psychologically wounded player is someone that responds to confrontation in a really adverse way. Like they do not tolerate somebody blocking them. They do not tolerate somebody beating them from the offensive side. Um, You know, you, you can see it in people's eyes, Sandy. The psychologically wounded players really come alive when someone hits them in the mouth. They really come alive when they're, you know, provided a big challenge. They're, they come alive when you challenge them in a quantitative way. You know, I'm faster than you. I'm better than you. Um, and, and the psychological wounds are not necessarily what you think. It's not doesn't have to be murder in your family. It doesn't have to be that, you know, you were, you were assaulted as a kid growing up. It means that you have interpreted this life to be a painful experience to the point where you now react to things in a very adverse way to challenges. You know, a lot of players, you know, Lawrence Taylor came up in the break. You know, LT was a guy that, you know, he just was not going to quit. And he, you know, he he was not going to quit on any given play, no matter what. Now, why that, you know, I'm not his psychologist, never have been. But I would venture to say something happened in his childhood that really influenced him to be someone that never gives up and it could and it's adversity you know adversity builds that little piece of experience and helps defensive players be you know just relentless pursuit it takes 18 percent more energy sandy to play defense than it does offense we've researched this we've studied this and to play defense it's reactionary football whereas offense is assignment football yeah, you, you know what you're doing on offense, so defense in that regard is more difficult. But th- I would imagine, and, I, and I'm glad you described it because I think people here psychologically wounded. And they're like something horrible must have happened. Right. No, it's 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 a it's just an approach to life. Some people are more confrontational. Some people are more diplomatic. Right. It's just the way they kind of approach things. And it, it may make sense that in certain roles, quarterback, for example, maybe the diplomatic one is more important as you're managing multiple personnel. Right. But one of the challenges I think what you're talking about that people that respond with com- confrontation. We see it with some players time to time. Some players have a difficult time making that adjustment too. Uh, and I, I go to the extremes of say, with bad behavior, Henry Ruggs, for example, or, or yeah. other players that, you know, you've seen them actually not be able to function outside of the football world. How do you identify those people to make sure that you're not getting the ones that, that can't function? Because if you can't function outside of the football world, well, you're not going to be able to help your team with the right. football world. And so that, to me at least, from the outside looking in, seems like a very fine line. Yeah. There's, so there's five major domains that we measure in personality. And one of them, we just talked about conscientiousness. That's their motor. The other thing that really gives us a clear indicator into a person's personality is neuroticism. And neuroticism is mood. So someone who's high in neuroticism, and again, we can quantitatively measure this through personality assessments. Somebody who is very extremely high in neuroticism that means they're going to have mood variations. And so they're, going to, they're not going to be as what we call emotionally agile. Emotional agility means you can adapt. You can adapt to change. You can adapt quickly. People who don't have emotional agility, 
they do not adapt well because their neuroticism at such a high level. We call it anxiety. And when you have anxiety at top, top levels, man, you have two types that we really measure, somatic and cognitive. Somatic means body. Soma means body. So when you have somatic anxiety, tightness of the chest, pit in the stomach, muscle tension. Now, when you're a football player, do you want muscle tension out on the field? Absolutely not. Think of a quarterback. Do you want muscle tension in your arm? Absolutely not. If you're an outside linebacker, you want to be able to run freely and as fast as you can. We also have cognitive anxiety, and that means thinking. Your thinking narrows. Now you're not thinking clearly. You're not thinking precisely. So when someone is highly neurotic, Sean and Sandy, that's a person that we can measure and say, it's, there's, high, there's a high probability here this person is not going to adapt well to change. Let me give you an example. Sometimes you draft – uh, safety, or, or no, let me reverse it. You draft a corner, and he's not as fast as you want. He's not as quick as you want. So now you can move him to safety. Some people are going to go, okay, let me, you know, I've never played safety, but, you know, I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to work. Some people are like, I'm not playing safety. I've never played safety. Why would I play safety? So they're, they're not as emotionally agile and they can't adapt. And we see this in everyday society. There are people that can just adapt. I have three sons and I can tell you, I ask one to go to Target and he says, okay, let's go. So we go and then everything's cool. I ask another one to go to Target and he goes, why? And I says, because I want you to go. Well, why do you want me to go? Because I don't want you to be home alone. Well, come, dad, I'll be okay. By the time we get in the car, Sean, I'm wore out. Yeah. So, so now when we're in the car ride, I don't say much. So he, so that kid evokes different behavior from me because most of us say, oh, I don't treat my kids different. Yes, you do. Because they, they evoke different behaviors from you. And that's based on their anxiety levels, resting anxiety, resting neuroticism. We can measure that very, very accurately. How's Sean Pink going to get along with Russell Wilson or vice versa? <laughs> well, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be reciprocal. It's not going to be one getting along with the other. They're going to have to understand each other. You know, it's really what a lot of people don't think about, um, because as you know, Sandy, I I work with a lot of NFL coaches too. So, like, the quarterback coach is going to spend the most time with Russell Wilson, okay, his position coach. That's going to be in the room with him the most. So that really is important. That coach is going to be, by the way, younger than Russell Wilson. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so that's the key component is, is, is the QB coach, then you got the OC, and then the head coach. But I think, you know, jun- judging on Sean's um, behavior in the past, he's always done real well with his quarterback. He's very methodical. There are head coaches in this league that coach quarterbacks like they coach linebackers. They, they all coach him the same. You can't do that. You have to understand how to reach people. I have one simple rule when I tell coaches when they're re- working with players. Reach the player where they're at, not where you're at. You know, drop the ego, drop the egocentrism and say, how do I reach him where he's at? And that's the key is as long as, you know, Sean is able to reach um, Russ where he's at, then I think they have a chance. I'm not so sure that the performance piece will be all there anyway. So I think that could be an issue. But um, in terms of personality, I think they'll get along fine. He is Dr. Rick Perea. Make sure you check him out his website at think one That is the number for think one for you and a, uh, uh, obviously, Dr. Rick spent a lot of time with a lot of very high-level teams, and so uh, it was a treat to be able to get you in studio for a couple of segments, and hopefully we get a chance to do this again. Oh, uh, thanks yes, for the sir. insight, because uh, football season, this Broncos season, is there are expectations, let's put it that way. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you, Sean. And and actually, you're better looking than I, I was billed, what Sandy told <laughs> well, me. Well, I, I noticed Rick was leafing through the most recent edition ah, of Mile High Sports. Yes. 
in which uh, yes, there, there is your picture. There's a current photo, uh, and also one when, of, when of I was people 13. who just looking at this photo, uh, <laughs> you, 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 you might attribute some woundedness. Oh, that's, I, oh. I, I don't, I don't that's doubt like, it. Look, I don't oh, doubt man. it. Yeah, I'm that, sure. That yeah. is a wounded-looking person. I, yeah. I am sure. I'm sure you'd have a field day. So I might. Well, we'll definitely have to have you back here. Uh, I'm sure you're going to do it again. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Dr. Thanks. Rick Brand, joining us. Think1foryou.org. That's the number four. Sandy and I will be back. We'll check in with the Rockies with Denver Gazette's Danielle Allen Tuck. We'll do that next.